Hey there, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half, Walk Double podcast, coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in beautiful Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you've listened to the show before, well, welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as a coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. New England mountain running legend Kevin Tilton joins the podcast. When your vanity plate is mountain goat, you've sort of set certain expectations. As a two-time U.S. mountain running team member, with a PR of 1 hour, 3 minutes, 42 seconds at the Mount Washington Road Race, two top 10 finishes at Pikes Peak Ascent, and the fastest known times for both the trail ascent and round trip on Mount Washington, he's lived up to it. But recently, he spent more time on two wheels than he has on two feet, and wouldn't you know, he's pretty good at riding his bike uphill. Next year, he's planning to do something nobody has ever done. Think big. Think really big. Well, here he is, Kevin Tilton. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to see you again. Um, uh, benefit, of course, for uh, for you and I is that we we actually get a chance to regularly see each other virtually. Um, uh, we'll talk more about that in in a, in a little bit, but uh, it is always uh, always nice to see you. Um, you know, I was, as I was thinking about um, the opening for this show, it occurred to me that um, a couple of years back, our mutual friend Paul Kirsch. Uh, had t-shirts made for the U.S. mountain running team as a fundraiser. And on the back of the shirt, it said, uh, my life is going uphill. Can you relate to that? Totally. Totally. (laughs) Everything I do is going uphill. (laughs) I kind of think the the cool thing about that, uh, about that expression that Paul used, obviously, is it kind of has two meanings, right? It's uh, has the literal meaning um, of, uh, um, you know, as, a, as a mountain runner, oftentimes we, uh, we spend, well, at least an equal amount of time going uphill as we're go, as we go downhill. Um, but then, uh, yeah, sort of this, uh, this uplifting message in spirit, uh, right about, about athletics, uh, in, in general, but, but I think trail and mountain running, uh, in particular. So, um, for the listener, just to, um, get the listener, um, uh, sort of oriented to, uh, to who you are and, and what you do. Um, where are you from and, um, what do you do professionally? I am originally from Tamworth, New Hampshire, which is just South of the Mount Washington Valley. And now I live in Albany, New Hampshire, which is just South of the Mount Washington Valley, just a little closer. <laughs> so, um, currently a, uh, the forest land surveyor for the White Mountain National Forest. Uh, I've been a land surveyor for 17 years and basically that's a job where you you go out and you measure stuff and you walk around in the woods and uh determine property lines and make maps and uh it's kind of my dream job that i didn't know was my dream job until i started doing it so it's uh i have a lot of fun every day at work and get to spend a lot of time outside so it's pretty good yeah you know where i mean based on where you live um uh and where you work 
Um, you know, it, it, it would seem natural that your vanity plate is mountain goat. M N T G O A T mountain goat. Um, but you weren't always a mountain runner. Um, when, why, and, and, and how did you get started in running in general? I got started in running. It was either sixth or seventh grade. Um, I had heard about that there was a running race at the New Hampshire motor speedway. And, uh, I grew up a big time NASCAR fan and I thought that would be the coolest thing to go run a race around the racetrack. Um, I played basketball, baseball, soccer, played a bunch of flag football, all kinds of sports when I was younger. Um, and I was a passing athlete, you know, that I was a decent athlete, but it really came down to, I was a little bit faster than most people. And I, I didn't quit and I didn't stop and take breaks. Um, so uh, I got by for quite a few years through elementary school and junior high of being one of the better players on most of my teams because um, I just didn't get tired like everybody else. And then eventually you get to high school and everybody else's talent takes over and I didn't didn't have that talent. So, um, so I did that race uh, a couple of years in junior high. And then when I got to high school, uh, I knew I'd be warm on the bench if I played soccer. So I decided to uh, try this thing called cross country, which I had heard of cross country skiing, but I didn't know what cross country running was and uh, showed up the first day of practice and found out we run around in the woods and said, well, that can't be that hard. So uh did, did that for four years of high school, ran track for four years and uh, cross country skied my junior and senior year also. Mm. Um, so um, during this time, as your, um, you know, as your athletic ability and your athletic interests are developing, um, you're, 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 you're probably also developing some, um, uh, some academic interests, um, as well. Um, after high school, um, where, where'd you go to college? I went to UNH in Durham. I originally studied mechanical engineering. Uh, like I said, grew up around, uh, cars and race cars and, and uh, I had a dream of, you know, hopefully working on a NASCAR team or some some type of team like that. And I always was interested in mechanical things. And uh, so that's that's what I uh, originally studied. Um, but, you know, in elementary school through junior high and high school, I was always interested in history and maps and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, didn't think it was anything that I would gravitate towards a career in. And uh, so I went to UNH and spent a couple of years studying mechanical engineering and um, but I found, you know, as while I was there, you know, more often than not, I'd come home on the weekends and started to, to learn that I liked being outside a lot more and, uh, you know, started running and cross country skiing and hiking and mountain biking and stuff. And, um, realized that the, the job opportunities for a mechanical engineer in new England were kind of few and far between, and I would probably end up somewhere in the Midwest or Detroit or something like that. And I, got to a point that didn't sound too appealing <laughs> so kind of had this existential crisis of well now what am i gonna, i'm gonna do i'm uh, two years into college and i gotta gotta figure out i need to graduate with some kind of a degree and something i can use and uh i stumbled into the surveying and mapping program um at the thompson school of applied science which is the uh, two-year program at unh and uh um ended up uh, meeting with the advisor there. And uh, I didn't really know what surveying was at the time. He kind of explained it and it was surveying and mapping is what it was titled. And I was like, well, I like maps. You know, I look at maps all the time for hiking and running. And, you know, I used to draw maps a lot when I was a kid. So I'm like, that's a good starting point. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll look at that side of it. And uh, so kind of, kind of worked out. Um, and did, did your, 
um, did your degree uh, choice uh, or degree uh, uh, field or specialty, did that need to change um, at, at, at that point when you began to identify um, this sort of post-education career? Um, yeah, you know, I kind of I kind of switched into the surveying and mapping, and that was a completely different program than what I was in. And uh, as I, you know, it was basically I was in that for a year and a half um, before I graduated, and uh, it was a lot of lot of stuff that was packed into a year and a half, and you kind of had different options to pursue. Uh, but the great thing about that program is they uh, one of the graduation requirements is you had to do a summer internship within your your major. Um, so I was lucky enough to to get an internship back here at home uh, with a company I ended up working for for 17 years and uh so i, I got to see a lot of uh you know different aspects of, of the, the career and the trade and everything um so it really opened my eyes to all the possibilities and uh, i knew yeah this is this is something i want to do so uh, hmm. worked out. <laughs> while you were while you were unh you were also um uh you were also a uh um a collegiate athlete um and uh uh, and, and running was, running was your sport. Tell the, tell the listener about w what you did athletically at the university of New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, you know, I certainly was not a scholarship athlete by any means, but, um, you know, it was a, a D one program and, uh, I was, uh, you know, had just barely enough talent to be able to walk on my, my freshman year, um, on, on a cross country and track. And I had never run indoor track before. And, uh, so I was, um, you know, I was able to, I think we probably had 20, 25 guys my, my freshman year on the team. And I came in, um, you know, my high school program was a, a fairly low mileage program, but kind of higher intensity. And so that was, um, that was, that was how we trained and, uh, you know, came into college where suddenly it's like, okay, you're going to run 60, 70 miles a week. And, you know, that was like double what I had been running in high school. <laughs> so, um, meanwhile, the intensity was still up there too, you know, maybe not quite the intensity we were doing in high school, but it was, you know, the stuff we were doing in high school was a lot shorter, less volume and stuff. So, um, there was a huge learning curve my freshman year, you know, you, you come in as an 18, 19 year old and you're on a team with guys that are, you know, 21, 22, some of them are fifth years seniors who've been doing this for four or five years and you know have all that that training background and racing and everything so um but it was it was great you know it was it was kind of a you know all right this is the big time you know if you're going to do this you got to step it up so kind of barely made it through my my first semester of my freshman year both academically and athletically and uh kind of reset over the winter break and was able to come back and uh and start training uh, you know consistently over the winter um I basically redshirted indoor track and uh I was lucky enough to um to to train with one of the guys who was a senior who was uh redshirting too and uh you know we he just kind of pulled me along, you know, through training every day. And, and, uh, so that, that really worked out. And, uh, then I was able to run outdoor track and suddenly I was running, you know, PRs, you know, I'd, I'd run a 5k and I'd set a two mile PR, you know, in the middle of it, that type of thing. Um, so it was, uh, it was, it was pretty cool to see, you know, how quickly I was able to advance with, uh, with the right training and everything. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, dur during those four years at UNH, where, um, wh where do you feel like you made the, the, the greatest gains athletically? Was it, was it from sort of, uh, was it from freshman to sophomore year or was it, you know, what, like what, what 12 month period do you, do, do you, uh, uh, do you suppose, um, you, you witnessed the, the, the greatest increase in, uh, in, in fitness 
as a yeah, result was, of that program. Yeah, it was probably that uh, that freshman to that second half of my freshman year to the first half of my sophomore year. I, you know, I was able to c- train consistently, get higher mileage in without you know beating myself up because I wasn't doing a lot of workouts. I wasn't racing. It was just get consistent mileage in. You know, second half of my freshman year, and then I started racing some stuff on the track and started seeing some results, and that really boosted my spirits. That when it came time for summer training to come, I said, you know, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to really put in some volume this summer. And, you know, same type of thing. I I found, okay, I'm really good with volume if there's not a ton of quality, you know, and not a ton of racing. And uh, so I was able to put in a really good summer of mileage. And then I came back and in cross country and ran, ran pretty well. Um, you know, I was hovering right around the top seven. Uh, whereas like the year before, you know, I was probably the 22nd guy on the team or something. So, um, you know, so that, that transition from the second half of my, my freshman year into the, the first half of my, my sophomore year was big. Um, and then kind of after that, you know, I, I, I had a real, a pretty good cross country season. And then, uh, then I got hurt, um, during indoor and, uh, you know, it was probably a matter of trying to keep the mileage up and then suddenly you're racing a lot and you're training harder, you're, you're training and practically racing with your teammates on a regular basis. Um, and then I ended up having a red shirt outdoor, um, cause of a, a hip injury. Um, so that was, that was kind of almost the end of my, of my collegiate running career. Um, I got through the second half of the, the sophomore year and then kind of trained half-heartedly over the summer, still trying to get back from injury. And then, uh, I ran, started cross country season, my, my junior year and, uh, and, ran a few races and kind of got close to that top seven thing again, and then uh, ended up leaving, leaving the team and, uh, and doing my own thing. And uh, so the last year and a half of college, I I switched majors. Uh, I um, quit running collegiately, but continued to run on my own. And uh, I had a girlfriend suddenly that I didn't have before too. So it was a a big, big time of change. (laughs) Yeah. That, um, yeah, that, that, uh, those types of things add a little bit of complexity to, yep. uh, uh, to, to, um, uh, an undergraduate, uh, um, scholar athletes, um, uh, priority, uh, list for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think I find it interesting with, um, sort of this almost sounds like a, you know, a fairly up down experience there, uh, you know, athletically in, in college, um, obviously some success, but then, then also some tribulations with working, working through injury. What's interesting to me is that, um, it didn't completely sour you on, on running. Why, what, what why do you think that was Kevin? What, why was it that you didn't just walk away from running altogether? You know, I, I think I, I was, I feel lucky that, you know, I, I had a great coach, Bernie Livingston in high school who his number one priority was make sure you got better. You know, yeah, he would love to have won a bunch of state titles and pushed everybody to their limits and have their, you know, legs falling off at the end of the season and, and, you know, had a bunch of state champions, but his priority was to, you know, just get people better, whether they were the 16 minute 5k runner or the 25 minute 5k runner. And, uh, you know, so that lower mileage approach that he had, you know, was, we could get fast off of what we did, uh, with, with the quality, but there was something left there, you know? So when I, when I graduated high school, you know, I finished eighth in the, uh, the class I cross country championships, my senior year. 
And, uh, you know, I went into college as, you know, a decent runner, but, you know, like I said, I wasn't a scholarship athlete. And, uh, so there was room for improvement. You know, I, I didn't come out of high school as a, as a two-time state champ that, you know, yeah, those people can still improve, but you know, there, there might be a little bit of a ceiling there. Um, you know, so when I got into college, it was like, okay, yeah, I went from, I ran 1725 in cross country, my senior year of high school to when I ran on the track the next year, I ran 1552 in, in the spring of my, my freshman year of, um, of, you know, like a year and a half after, after I graduated from, or yeah, about a year after I graduated from high school. So, um, so that even when I had those trials and tribulations, you know, it was, there were always glimmers of hope that I was going to get better. You know, when I, I'd get healthy, I'd, I'd start to see some improvements. You know, I, I redshirted the, um, you know, the outdoor season my sophomore year, and then, you know, slowly started getting my mileage back up over the summer. And, you know, I probably almost didn't have a place on the team. I was basically, you know, I was one of the last two spots that was taken to be on the, on the cross country team instead of redshirting that year. And uh, we go to our first meet and I was our fifth guy, you know? So there were always these, always these glimmers of hope that it was like, okay. Um, and that, and that's kind of where I, I ended up leaving the team. You know, there was, there were some things that happened. Um, and uh, you know, I was battling that back and forth with injury and stuff and, and, my big thing was I, I, I knew it was something I wanted to continue doing. You know, I knew I wasn't going to make the Olympics, but, uh, you know, I knew running was a lifelong sport and, uh, and I knew that in the right circumstances, you know, I could get better. I, I didn't know what my ceiling was and I didn't know what my specialty was going to be, but, um, you know, I knew if I kept plugging away at it, that, uh, that I was going to get better. So, so it was a tough decision. You know, I really enjoyed having, uh, you know, teammates and, and, you know, being part of a team and, and all that. But, uh, it, I, my worry was if I had continued what I was doing, I was going to, uh, end up on a scrap heap or something. So, uh, it all, all worked out in the end. Yeah. So what, I mean, what, what did your training look like? What type of racing did you do in the last, that last year and a half at UNH when you were on your own? Yeah. So basically, you know, it was, it was the fall. Um, I, uh, my last, my last collegiate race was at the end of September in New York city. And, uh, I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I knew I was better at longer distances. I was never gifted with speed in the shorter stuff. Um, so I, you know, I knew, um, you know, like I, I primarily, you know, I was better at cross country and I ran the 10 K on the track. And, uh, so I knew I wanted to do some longer distance stuff. So I was kind of thinking, you know, okay, there's a local half marathon, the white mountain milers half marathon is on a fast course. That'll be something I shoot for. And, uh, it was literally like the, the week after I quit the team was the Cranmore Hill climb. And, um, this was back when the Cranmore Hill climb was a three mile race that went straight up the service road. And, uh, I had run it a couple times in high school and, uh, um, I had run Mount Washington once when I was in high school and, you know, I wasn't great at any of those, but I was like, you know what, that's a good, I've done it. You know, I'll, I'll go, I'll go run that race and, and see what happens. And so, uh, so I show up to Mount Washington that day or, uh, sorry to, to Cranmore that day. And, uh, Richard Bolt was there and, uh, you know, he's uh, been a manager of the U S mountain running team was a former member of the mountain running team. And Nikki Kimball, who was a former uh, women's member of the mountain running team were there. And, uh, Paul had invited them and uh, I ended up beating Richard by like 30 seconds or something. And he's like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> you know? And so, um, so that was kind of the start of my mountain running career. And, uh, and I talked to, talked to him after and him and Nikki and, in the, they were telling me all about the the opportunities to race abroad and stuff like that. And I knew knew some of that stuff because I, you know, I knew who Dave Dunham was and I had kind of followed Dave. And, you know, this was in the the infancy of 
of coolrunning.com and stuff and and people not quite having blogs but you know there's there was stuff out there and uh so you know you i remember reading you know about mountain running and snowshoe running and these things and thinking they're crazy and so six months later i'm doing all of these things and uh so my last year and a half of college was uh you know spent running you know half marathons and road races i joined the central mass riders which richard was a member of and dave dunham of course and uh started doing like the road grand prix and did a bunch of the mountain races and the mountain circuit and stuff and uh that's that's kind of what i did for a couple of years there uh and what what year did you graduate from unh so hit, uh, yeah help me yeah 2005 okay two, 2000 2005 <clears throat> so the genesis really of your um of your of your mountain running career and interest you you date to that Cranmore hill climb in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I had done, I had done my first Mount Washington road race and it was 2000. I was a junior in high school and, uh, that was one of those. It was like, I, I had finished my track season and, uh, you know, I think I ran a 446 mile was the highlight of my high school track season. <laughs> and it's like, well, what am I going to do now for summer training? And, and I knew about the Mount Washington road race, you know, it was something that's in the local papers. It's, I wouldn't call it the local race because it's not something like you can just show up that day and sign up for. It's not like your local turkey trot, but I always knew about it. And, you know, Mount Washington is this big imposing figure. And I said, oh, why, why don't I sign up for that? You know, so I I was able to get a lottery bypass through the White Mountain Milers. And uh, I don't even know if I'd ever run longer than a 10K before I went in, <laughs> into the race. And uh, um so I, I made it to the three mile mark, uh, without having to walk. And then I had to kind of, I did the walk jog thing for a while. And then from six miles on, it was, it was a really cloudy, foggy day. And I remember getting passed by an old woman and I was like, I am never doing this stupid race again, never, you know? And, uh, and so the next, the next year was the same day as my high school graduation. So I couldn't even, you know, had done it if I wanted. Um, but then my freshman year of college, you know, I suddenly start running faster and stuff. And I said, you know what, I want to give that a shot again, you know? And, uh, so I ended up, um, getting, I think I got a lottery bypass for that too. And, uh, that was the the first time it only went to halfway and, uh, I ended up finishing 11th overall. And, uh, so I was pretty psyched with that, but there were a lot of people that were like, Oh, that's a fluke. Cause it only went to halfway. You wouldn't run that well. You know, I, I heard, heard some of those things behind my back. So, so then my sophomore year, I had been injured, you know, all spring and I signed up for it again. I had a lottery bypass for finishing up high and, uh, but I was in really bad shape. So I ended up walk jogging the whole thing to like a one fifteen again. <laughs> so, uh, so that was, that was kind of everything before, you know, that, that good Cranmore race. But so I had a little bit of background in it, but you know, not a lot of great, great yeah. success. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't 2005. Um, one of the two years that you were selected to the U S mountain running team. Yep. Yep. 2005 was the first year. Yep. And you, 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 you did the Cranmore Hill climb that year in 2005. Yes. Yep. Yep. And that, um, at that time, the Cranmore Hill climb was in the early summer, June. Uh, June? this, let's see, 2005, it was in August. I think. It was in August. Yep. Yep. So right. I think there were, there was a couple qualifier races that year, maybe might've even been like three or four. It was something crazy. And so because it was an up down year, um, there was the Northfield mountain race, which Dave Dunham used to direct was like the week after Mount Washington. And they took like the, the winner or, or the top two from that race. 
there was a race at a small ski area in Wisconsin where they did the same thing. They took the top one or two. And I feel like there was a, maybe a race in California or something. And then Cranmore was in August. And so I think it was like the winner of each one of those races got an automatic bid. And then they, they took like two at-large spots or maybe like one of the races was a U.S. championship. So it was like first and second. And then there was one at-large spot. So basically I got a I got the at-large spot because I finished. I think I was like eighth at Northfield and I was third at Cranmore or something. And then Washington wasn't a qualifier race, but I had finished fifth at Washington. So, um, you know, they kind of look at your overall, you know, resume and that that 2005 that was the year that was your pr year uh at the at the mount washington road race yep yep yeah um yeah tell tell the listener that story what did you yeah so that, that was day, how did that day unfold and and uh what what did your time end up being yeah that was so the lead up to that race was was interesting the fall of 2004 i had trained for the cape cod marathon and i was i was convinced i was going to qualify for the the olympic trials at some point so i i really want i put my eggs in the basket of you know wanting to run a, a good marathon because i was a longer distance runner and uh so i you know i knew i wasn't going to qualify necessarily at cape cod but i thought maybe with the right training a 230 was possible well i put in a ton of miles i raced a bunch and got really fit and i also got really overtrained <laughs> and so uh, about 10 days before the cape cod i rolled my ankle really really bad and couldn't run for like a week and uh so long story short i dnf'd at cape cod so this was october um and i got into a real mental funk um both academically athletically um you know got through the winter and uh finally stopped feeling sorry for myself i had to uh to get my act together so i could graduate on time and uh started running in earnest in uh in um, march and so this this was after like maybe doing like three days a week of running all winter maybe a little bit of cross-country skiing with my girlfriend now wife jess and uh not really doing a whole lot of anything and so finally in march i, I start running a little more run on a consistent basis six seven days a week start getting my mileage up 60 70 miles an hour start throwing in some workouts and May rolls around, I graduate and uh, start getting in some mountain runs. I got a new job, so I'm working 40 plus hours a week and running 70, 80 miles a week in the mountains and stuff and start running some mountain races and start running really well. And it's like, well, how's that possible? I didn't train all winter. Well, I trained my ass off all fall. And uh, finally, you know, after absorbing the training, started to pay off. So, um, so anyways, at Mount Washington, I, I kind of went into Mount Washington kind of wouldn't say overtrained, but I was really tired. And so I, I took it really easy that week and, uh, you know, showed up at the race that morning and I was just like, Oh God, my legs feel horrible. This is going to be, it's going to be terrible. And, uh, so the gun goes off and I, you know, I get to the first mile and, you know, I'm probably like 10th or 12th place or something. And, and just keep, keep going. You know, I think I was like six thirty for the mile or something. And then I get to the second mile and I ran a seven forty seven. And uh, before the, you know, before I hit the mile mark, I was like, oh, God, I feel like shit. And then I look at my split and I'm like, well, that's why I feel like shit. I just ran a 747 mile. And so, um, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, I, I get a little further around the next corner and uh, one of the local runners saw me there and was cheering me on. And I was like, all right, I, I got to keep this going. And uh, so it was a cool cool rainy day and which is like perfect conditions for me and i just slowly started picking people off and i got to halfway and i think i was like just over 30 minutes at the halfway mark and uh for anybody that's run mount washington you know you can typically 
take your halfway time, double it and add, you know, three to five minutes, maybe a little more, depending on how fast you're running. And I was like, man, if I take that and double it and add five minutes, I'm still going to run 65 minutes, even if I completely fall apart. So, um, so I just kept my head down. It got really foggy and, uh, I got to about the six mile mark where they, they have a water stop and you couldn't, you couldn't see like 200 feet in front of you. And uh, I had already handed off my glasses at halfway to um, my high school coach's wife was there cheering us on. And I, I couldn't see out of my glasses. They were fogging up. So I gave her my glasses. So I'm running literally blind. Um, and uh, I get to the six mile mark and they're like, Matt Carpenter's right ahead of you. And I was like, Matt Carpenter's right ahead of me. You know, Matt Carpenter had won Mount Washington like two or three times. And, you know, it was a god of mountain running and stuff. And I'm like, I'm right behind Matt Carpenter. No way. And uh, so I, I didn't know any different. You know, I was like, he could be literally 200 feet ahead of me. So I just kept grinding all the way to the finish and uh, ended up running 103.42. And uh, I was a minute and a half behind Matt Carpenter. So it wasn't right behind him, <laughs> but it was it was enough to keep keep me going there. So, um, but that was, that was a pretty cool, pretty cool day for sure. So uh, yeah, I mean, between making the U.S. mountain running team and, uh, and running a PR at Mount Washington, was was 2005 was was that was that your greatest year uh athletically uh, as a as a mountain runner anyway it it was right up there for sure you know mount washington obviously is my you know my favorite race my most important race and you know that was my pr and uh you know so i i ran well there i got to go to the world championships in new zealand um I don't know. There's probably some other things that were pretty good that year that I can't think of graduated from college, you know, but, uh, um, but yeah, so that's, that was probably, probably right up there. I think there's probably another year or two that, you know, would, would rival that maybe like maybe a little more well-rounded, but for sure. Um, definitely, definitely a high point. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, just, I mean, in terms of, in terms of accolades. So um, you head to worlds in New Zealand. Uh, who else was on that team? Uh, uh, let's see. Paul. Names. Paul Lowe was there, Simon Gutierrez, Eric Blake, uh, Tim Parr, and Ryan Pauling. That was okay. the that was the men's team. Okay. So, uh, how did the team do? Uh... I believe we got seventh, which at the time was pretty pretty good for us. Um, you know, so you we were I wouldn't say we were underfunded. You know, we got our our trip was paid for, and and all the teams get a minimum amount of funding from the local organizing committee. It's still the same now as it as it was then. Um, you know, but in prior years, you know, before me being on the team, you know, Dave Dunham tells the stories of you was you know you had to fund your own way for a lot of it, and so we were fortunate enough to have uh, sponsors in Tiva and Sport Hill that helped you know step up and helped us with travel and stuff and and everything. So, um, but it wasn't you know it wasn't a level of professionalism like it might be you know nowadays where you you know. Most of us that were on that team were, you know, had a day job <laughs> and, uh, you know, worked maybe 40 hours a week. Um, and, uh, you know, nowadays I'd, I'd say that more of the athletes on the mountain team are, you know, maybe they have a day job, but it's uh, a 20 hour a week thing. So they're allowed to train more and recover and, and do all those things. So um, seventh place for us was, was pretty good at that time. I think we had loftier ambitions. Um, you know, I was the, 
I guess I was the last, the sixth guy on the team. I think I finished like 86th place or no 71st place, you know? Um, and I was, a I was a little dejected. I thought I should have finished a little higher, but it was, it was an up and down year. It wasn't really my specialty. And, and, uh, you know, I thought I, I probably could have run a little better, but, um, you know, we were seventh, seventh country in the world, which wasn't, wasn't too bad. So you followed up 2005, um, um, and made the team again in 2006. Um, how did you, how did you make the team the next year? Yeah. So 2006 was, was definitely an interesting year. Um, it was, there were two, three qualifier races, three, three qualifier races. Mount Washington was the U S Mount running championships. I think it was the first year that Mount Washington or might've even been the first, well, they might've had some mountain running championships before that, but it was the first year Mount Washington was a U.S. mountain running championship. And they automatically took the top two, I think from that race, maybe even three. Um, and there was Loon Mountain who was like a week or two after took the winner of that. And then there was a race in Vail, Colorado that also took the, the winner. And then there was supposed to be a one at large spot. So I trained my ass off from Mount Washington in my backyard and, you know, I was doing training runs on the road and everything I was doing was geared, geared to that. Um, I had done a bunch of snowshoe running all winter and had some pretty good snowshoe results and uh, race day came and I completely blew it. <laughs> so gun goes off. I was leading at the mile. I think we came through the mile in like six twelve. And like I said, the year before, I think I came through at like 630. Um, and I I was the one pushing the pace. Um, I have a photo up on my wall um, that uh, I have it in multiple places. Remind me to not be an idiot, basically. Um, <laughs> it, it's a cool looking photo because I've got all these really good runners around me and I'm leading. And uh, but uh, half a mile later, I started to drop like a rock. And uh, if I had been smart and uh, and just sat in that pack, you know, I, I think I could have run a 102 or 103 that day. And, um, you know, potentially qualified for the team. Uh, but instead I think I finished like 22nd and, uh, that was tough to swallow. You know, I had put all my eggs in that one basket and, uh, the good news was I had had another opportunity at loon a couple of weeks later, which was, you know, close by. And I knew the course. Well, it was the first year of the loon mountain race. I had, you know, kind of helped Paul Kirsch and, and Richard Bolt and Dave Dunham, you know, set up that course. And so I, I knew it probably better than most people. And, uh, I ended up finishing second there and, um, Paul Lowe won the race and he had already qualified, had got one of the qualifying spots in Mount Washington. So I was like, Oh, great. I'm going to get, I'm going to get his spot. And then I was told after, well, it's not how it works. Like they, he, you know, he defers that spot, but it basically, it's going to go back into a pool for at large. We're going to do another at large instead of one. So here I am, I got second in that race in a qualifier, but I also got 22nd, another qualifier. I'm like, the so now what do I do? So at this point I had never, you know, never been to out. I think I no, I had been to altitude for once for a, a snowshoe race in uh, 2004 and I had bronchitis at the same time. So I didn't really know how I was going to react to altitude. So there's one more qualifier race out in Vail. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Vail, the, the base of the skier is at like 8,000 feet. And uh, so I don't even know if I had been that high before, let alone trying to race there. Uh, definitely hadn't even run there. So, uh, so on a whim, Jess, Jess was in Spain at the time on a week long trip for school. 
and uh, before she gets back, I email her. I'm like, hey, by the way, you're going to get back and I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be in Colorado. So <laughs> so I hop on a plane and I stay uh, stay with one of my uh, college teammates uh, who was living in Boulder and he was going to CU Boulder for uh, for a master's degree at the time. And uh, so he, he, he had been there for a few years and knew the lay of the land and stuff. So he was really cool to host me. And uh, so, you know, I, I did one run in Boulder, which is at 5,200 feet. And it, I was like, okay, this, this isn't too bad. It, basically the way I equate it was, you know, I was doing an easy run, but it kind of felt like a tempo run. You know, it wasn't really hard, but it's, you just, you know, but I wasn't gasping for air. So I was like, okay, I can, I can handle this. So, you know, the next morning we get up and we drive this tiny, tiny rental car that I have up over the, the pass there on I-70 and, uh, you know, we're getting up over 12,000 feet or whatever. And I'm like getting a headache and my hands are swelling and stuff. And we're just driving. I'm not even running yet. And, uh, so then you drop down over the other side and you get the veil. And so I go out for a warm up for like a mile and a half and I'm like, I'm going to die. This, this is awful. Like I feel so bad, you know, and I paid all this money to come here and, uh, I didn't really know, you know, like I knew Simon Gutierrez and I, and I knew some Colorado people. So, but I didn't really feel comfortable enough, like asking for any advice and stuff. And so I was just like, you know what, if I go red line, I'm never going to recover from it. So all I can do is just run just under my red line and just see where that takes me. So gun goes off, you know, and it was a pretty small race. It was probably like 40 people in it, you know, despite it being a qualifier, um, you know, it was mostly Colorado people there. And, uh, so some people that I had raced against at Mount Washington and stuff. And, uh, so like I said, gun goes off and I'm probably in like 20 spot out of like 40 people, you know, and it was like, Oh boy, this, this was not a good idea. And, but I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm going to jog it essentially, you know, I'm just going to go just under red line. So, uh, so we get, you know, maybe a mile into the course in the course, the course was actually really cool. It was a, um, a world cup downhill mountain bike course, but we ran up it. So you picture all the bank turns and tabletops and stuff like that. And, uh, that's what we were running up. And it was probably five, five and a half miles, something like that. But like I said, you start at 8,000. I think we ended up at like 11,000 feet up at the summit of the mountain. And uh, so we get like a mile, mile and a half in, and there's a section that traverses a, a ski slope. And uh, so I'm in a line, you know, I'm probably in like eighth place and, you know, I just slowly trucking along and it's this little piece of single track that goes through, you know, knee high grass. And without changing effort, I pass five people. And uh, so this is this was a term that's an inside joke with me and Paul Kirsch and Dave Dunham called Western Technical. This is what we call Western Technical. So if you're on anything like that, that, you know, it's it's a little bit rocky, a little bit grassy. That's Western Technical. So anyway, so so I passed like five people and suddenly I'm in like third place, fourth place, you know, and it's like two, three miles in. And I'm like, OK, well, this is getting better. And I'm like, this still really sucks. This is still really hard. But, you know, I can see Simon Gutierrez up there and I can see a couple other guys. And uh, so basically it was, you know, just one foot in front of the other. And the next thing I know, I caught second place at, I don't know, probably a mile to go. And I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to put a surge in and just get by this guy and kind of demoralize him a little bit, which was the worst idea ever. Cause like, like I said, I was trying not to redline and then suddenly I'm redlining and, uh, but I get by him and I don't blow up. So that was a good sign. And uh, the last section of the course, you make a hard left off of some single track and then it's a, you know, cat track up a pretty, pretty steep section and, you know, double track, but I could see Simon up there and I was like, well, probably not going to catch Simon. I'm going to try like hell. So gave it everything I had. And, uh, 
I think I finished like 40 seconds behind him. So, so I ended up 22nd at Mount Washington, second at Loon, second at Vail. And, uh, after having never been in altitude before, so I ended up getting a, uh, the, one of the at large qualifying spots, uh, based on those results. Second, second year in a row, uh, with an at large bid. Yep. Um, so, uh, how was that 2006 team, um, different than the 2005 team? I mean, how, how was it different in terms of its makeup of runners and, yep. and how was it different in terms of, in terms of the outcome at worlds? Yeah, it was interesting. It was, it was definitely a, a mix of, uh, I wouldn't say older generation and younger generation, but, you know, kind of, there was, you know, Paul Lowe and Simon Gutierrez and Eric Blake were all on the team again. And Eric was Eric's like a year older than me. So we were, you know, I was like 22, 23, Eric was like 24. So, but you know, Paul and Simon, you know, Simon was a master's athlete who had finished 10th the year before in New Zealand. Um, you know, and Paul was maybe around 30. I don't, I don't he might not have even quite been 30 yet, but he was like old compared to us. And, uh, so yeah, it was Simon and Paul, Eric and me. I had been on the team the year before. And then there was uh, Shiloh Melky, who was from North Carolina, was about about my age. And uh, oh, Ricky Gates. So a young Ricky Gates, who was uh, about about my age or a year younger, um, had, uh, you know, he had come to Mount Washington and he had qualified at Mount Washington. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, there was some experience with, with uh, Paul and uh, Simon, for sure. They had been on multiple teams. And then me and Eric had been on the team the, the previous year. Um, and Eric might have even, yeah, Eric had been on one other team uh, before that in, in Italy. Um, so we were coming back with quite a bit of experience. And then we had Ricky and Shiloh, who had never been on, on the Worlds, uh, but were, were really good runners, too. And uh, um, so it was, it was a, we had definitely high hopes there to, to run well. And where, where, where were those world championships held in 2006? Those were in Bursa, Turkey, which was interesting. Um, you know, it was, it was a place where, you know, this was 2006. It was not that far removed from nine 11. There were a lot of people talking about, you know, should the U S field the team, you know, and it wasn't to say that everybody in Turkey hated the U S but you know, you're not that far from Iraq and Iran when you go to the, uh, the Eastern portion of the country and stuff. And, uh, but you know, it was like, it, it wasn't far removed, but it was far enough removed, you know, that everybody's fears were laid and stuff. And, uh, honestly, it was a pretty awesome trip. It was very eye opening. Uh, Turkish people were super friendly. Um, the state department, you know, puts out official bulletins. They say, don't wear any American gear. Don't identify as American. If anybody asks you if you're American, tell them you're Canadian. And uh, we get there and we're not wearing our gear like in airports and buses and trains. Everybody knew we were American and they were super friendly to us. <laughs> and uh, so it was it was really eye-opening. It was it was pretty cool. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they, they just viewed us as somebody new to their country and they wanted to make a good impression. And, uh, you know, we were on a, a ferry that took us part of the way from the airport to the race and, you know, people were buying us tea and coffee and stuff like that. So it was, it was pretty cool. And how did that, how did that team fare on the, uh, competitively on that world stage? I think we were seventh again, possibly. Um, I think, uh, I think Simon and Eric had pretty good races and, uh, I think Ricky Gates. Yeah. Ricky was like top 25, I think. And that was a huge surprise. Like everybody knew Ricky was pretty good. But like I said, that was his first year of like competitive mountain running. 
and uh, he showed up at first time on the world scene and finished top 25. So I think Simon and Eric and Ricky were top 25. And at the time, it was a six six guys on the team and four scored. So we had a really solid top three, um, but we didn't quite have a fourth that that um, you know ran well. I I finished 86th. Um, I really should have run run better. I you know it was same type of thing it was that's my niche uphill running and a lot of it was on trail and you know not like super technical but you know stuff that would maybe slow down normal normal road guys and uh i just didn't didn't have a good race so um so that was kind of a bummer you know but uh you know learning experience and you know still had a a great experience out of the whole trip and everything so after 2000 2006 uh it is it would be the last year that you uh, that you represented the U.S. Um, uh, on the U.S. mountain running team, um, and it, but it would still be about another decade or so before you really got into cycling, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, yeah, what what happened in that in in that in that decade after your last U.S. mountain running team and before and before you really kind of got got heavy into cycling. Yeah, I still, you know, I continued with mountain running. I, I figured out that was my niche. I figured, you know, I could train for marathon and hopefully make the Olympic trials. And I knew I, even if I made the Olympic trials, I wasn't going to make the Olympics. But, you know, Olympic trials look cool on a resume and just be a neat experience. But I knew if I really steered towards mountain running, I knew that was something I, I was good at. And, uh, you know, I had proven results fairly early in my career. So, so I, I stayed stayed with that through, you know, 2014 or so. And, uh, you know, probably had one of my better years all around, but definitely including mountain running in in 2012. So, you know, still another six years after I made the U S team. And that was still always my goal after, after 2006 was to get back on the U S team. I still felt like I had some unfinished business, especially on the world scene and, uh, never, never quite made it back there, but, you know, still had a lot of fun trying. So still had some good performances at Mount Washington. Uh, I got to run the Pikes Peak Ascent a couple times and I had a couple top 10 finishes there, which those are probably, especially my PR there. I think I ran, it was like 229.50 something. Um, 230 is kind of that magic barrier at Pikes Peak. If you're under under 230, you're, you're, you're going pretty good. And uh, to do that coming from, from sea level and, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I've never had the luxury of being able to take two weeks off from work and go and and uh, and spend two weeks there and adapt uh, to the altitude and everything. So I I always would fly out on Thursday and land Thursday night, get a quick run in, do a short run on Friday, and race on Saturday up to fourteen thousand feet, and uh, <laughs> had some pretty good results. So I was I feel pretty fortunate there. But uh, yeah, 2012 was a pretty good year between, I, I think, yeah, I ran like 105 something at Mount Washington in my second fastest uh, race time and then ran 229 at Pikes Peak. And uh, I think I had some, probably some other good good races throughout the year, but those were the highlights. And you, you had two top 10 finishes at Pikes Peak. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I had one in, uh, I, I did Pikes Peak three times. The first time I went was 2008. I was kind of in a not a great year. Um, and then uh, it was a year where there was snow and lightning above tree line. And uh, I got to 10 miles and uh, ended up turning around because the weather was so bad. And I think maybe the top 20 runners made it to the summit. But um, after like the top 20, they basically stopped the race at 10 miles and uh, turned everybody around. Um, so 
I didn't, I turned myself around and officially have a DNF, but I would have been in the same boat as everybody else if I had been 10 spots lower. And, uh, but then I, I went back in 2009 and, uh, and got a top 10 finish there and then got a top 10 finish in 2012. So you, as, as we're talking about the, uh, the, the, the Mount Washington, uh, road race and, and Pikes Peak ascent, and you're, 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 you're throwing out times, uh, you know, 103 at Mount Washington, 230 as a benchmark at, at Pikes Peak. Important to, to note a couple of, um, a couple of significant and important differences between those two, uh, between those two races. Uh, one is the, one is the length. Um, Pikes Peak is almost twice as long as Mount Washington, Mount Washington, 7.6 miles. Pikes Peak is 13, 13.3. 13.3. Also the difference in, in terms of, in terms of uh, elevation or, or altitude, Mount Washington finishes at uh, a little over or just under 6,300 feet, a little over 6,288, 6,288 feet is the summit of Mount Washington. Pikes Peak, however, uh, the summit is at what, 14,000, 14, one, one, five or something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so those are the significant differences in terms of those two events when, you know, when, when the listener is listening to the, 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 the difference, um, the differences in time. Um, so I mentioned 2000, I mentioned that decade or, or 2016, uh, I did a little snooping around on your, on your Strava account and, uh, I, I I got to get some explanation from you on, on something that I observed. So um, prior to 2016, um, as it relates to cycling, you had logged, you know, a handful of rides. It looked like you had been sort of dabbling in cycling. And I, when I mean dabbling, like literally three times know, a year, yeah, less than 10 <laughs> rides a year. Um, but, um, but in 2006, so in 2016 uh, you logged, six rides in Strava. Mm-hmm. In 2017, you logged 112 rides in Strava. And then you know, since 2017, the, um, I mean, almost year over year, your total number of rides has increased almost, almost year over year in terms of, in terms of number of rides. Question is what, 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 what switch was flipped for you between 2016 and 2017? Is that when you became a cyclist? Pretty much. Yeah. You know, I still considered myself a runner for a couple of years after that, even though I wasn't primarily running. <laughs> um, but uh, for me, it was it was kind of between 2012 was kind of my high water mark. Like I said, I, I ran well at Washington and Pikes Peak, and then I had turned 30 that year. And then, um, you know, I kind of got into the winter and, and snowshoe racing was a big thing for me at the time. And I, I wasn't having very good snowshoe results. And then I didn't run well in the mountains in 2013. And so I was like, you know, I was kind of in this bad mindset. Oh, I'm 30. I'm over the hill now. So, so I started, you know, dabbling in ultras and stuff. And, uh, and, uh, so I ran, started running some 50 milers and kept dropping out. And then, uh, finally you, you throw stuff at the wall enough something's gonna stick i i finally finished a 50 miler and i ended up winning the vermont 50 in 2014. so now i was convinced i was an ultra runner so i signed up for leadville and uh so i trained pretty hard that winter and uh got some good mileage in and stuff but didn't really keep it up through the, that next summer and uh dnf'd at 40 miles at leadville and uh was pretty disenchanted with running and competing at that point. And, uh, you know, I still enjoyed being outside and wanting to do stuff and, uh, you know, but, uh, I was, 
you know, I've, I've always been a competitive person, no matter what, what sport I've done, but, uh, I was just like, all right, you know, it's time for some, something different. So I, uh, I skied quite a bit that, that winter 2015 and 2016, I had, I had cross country ski raced in high school and, and, uh, you know, Jess and I had always gone out and, and played around on skis and stuff. So I made it a goal just to get in as many ski days that winter as possible. So I think I got like 59 days of skiing in over that winter. And, uh, you know, the next, next spring I was kind of like, all right, well now, now what am I going to do? You know, it's like, I, you know, I still enjoy running a little bit, but I, I didn't really have any racing goals, you know? So it was like, I, you know, I saw you riding gravel bikes and I saw, you know, other people online and stuff. And I said, well, you know, I'll give that a try. I've, I've got a mountain bike. I ride that a little bit, but as much as I like technical trail running, I'm not very good on a mountain bike on technical stuff. And, you know, roads are crazy. You're, you know, you're always worried about getting hit and stuff. And I said, well, that, that gravel thing looks cool. Cause I used to do a lot of running on gravel too. So, um, so, you know, at your recommendation, I went out and, and bought a gravel bike and uh, did one ride on it. And I was absolutely sold. I was like, this is the coolest thing. It's like so much faster than a mountain bike. You don't have to worry about the technical aspect. There's no cars. You get to go cool areas. A lot of places that I had already run anyways. But it's like, wait a minute, in an hour that I would have spent running where I'm, you know, seeing eight miles, I can see 16 miles, you know, we're on a two hour ride. I'm going to see 32 miles instead of 16, you know? And so the, the opportunity to explore and have adventures and stuff it, it, that really piqued my interest. And, uh, so that's, that's really what did it for me. Do you think, um, do you think adding cycling benefited your running, uh, and vice versa that, that the, that the running that you were still doing, uh, was, you know, was, was a benefit to your cycling or, or were they competing interests? You know, I think it probably did, but it took a while for it to really help my running. You know, I think at that, where I was at, at that point, it was, it was probably taking away from my running in a way, you know, it, it was good that it was giving my body a break, you know, being a little older, not being able to recover as much as I, as well as I used to. Um, it was good in that sense, but you know, I've always been somebody who, who has trained specifically for what you do. You know, if you're running Mount Washington, I'm going to run a lot uphill, you know, or if you're running a marathon, I'm going to run a ton of, of, um, miles at marathon pace. Um, so I was probably at that point where it was like, I wasn't really, you know, complimenting my, my cycling wasn't really complimenting the running that I was doing, but that being said, I was kind of half-assing my running anyway. So it was, it, it was better than not doing anything. <laughs> so it was, it was better than nothing at that point. Um, well, in two, and in 2017, you and I started working together, uh, professionally in a, in a coach athlete relationship. Um, that's, um, was there a coincidence there? I mean, why, you know, you, you were, you were, you know, obviously, uh, an, an elite athlete had been an elite athlete, um, had, you know, had, had done all of your training and racing. I mean, aside from high school and collegiately, you were self-coached. I mean, and you self-coached yourself to some, some pretty, you know, pretty amazing success. Um, why hire a coach in 2017? Uh, cause I knew I knew nothing about cycling. And I, especially when it came to trying to, you know, I knew I still wanted to run some, you know, I, I, like I said, I still kind of viewed myself as primarily a runner who was riding a bike. So I was like, you know, how am I going to mesh these things together? And I knew you had that experience of, you know, having coached people, having done it yourself and everything, um, you know, and, and then even just stuff about bikes, you know, I didn't, that's somebody who grew up mechanically inclined and working on cars all the time. I, I knew nothing about bikes. I, uh, 
I took one class in college that was called mechanical dissection. And, um, there were, I think there were like four projects that we did throughout the course of the, uh, of the semester. And one was like, we took apart a water pump and we had to diagram it and write instructions for putting it back together. And there was one, like we did a, a part of a snowmobile suspension. And then one of them was, we were given a bunch of bikes that the Durham police department had dropped off at the mechanical engineering department that they had found around town. And we had to take them apart and fix them back up and donate them for like toys for tots. So it was a good feel good project. And we learned something and I didn't know anything, you know, I had been turning wrenches since the time I was like 12 years old. And, you know, I was like, what, I don't even, I don't even know what tool to grab to take this thing off, you know? And, uh, so despite being mechanically inclined, I knew really nothing about bikes. Um, so I knew working with a coach was going to help, you know, just understanding how to, how to, I mean, I knew how to operate a bike. I knew how to ride a bike. I've been riding a bike since I was a kid, you know, but, uh, you know, to, to race it, you know, I knew I wanted to race a little bit and stuff like that. So, um, that's where having a coach was invaluable. Well, speaking of racing and, and speaking of cycling, um, one of the things that you and I, uh, started working together on, uh, really sort of right from the beginning was this, um, was this idea of, um, of racing both the Mount Washington road race, the foot race, um, and the Mount Washington hill climb, the bicycle race, um, and the sort of unique challenges of combining or meshing those two training programs uh, together to optimize performance at both races. Not, not simply a matter of can I finish both of the races in one calendar year, but can I race both of the races in, in one calendar year? Um, let's, let's talk for a minute, though. Let's, let's pause and talk for, for, for a minute about, um, about Mount Washington, about the about the mountain itself, um, because it, 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 it is a really special place for you. I mean, whether the listener realizes it or not, and maybe you referred to it as being in your backyard, it, it, Mount Washington is almost literally in your backyard, uh, from, from your, from your, from your front door, uh, to the base of Mount Washington. How long does it take you to get there? Uh, it's like a 30 minute drive. Okay. So, right. Yeah. Um, and by New Hampshire standards, uh, 30 minutes is not that far. No. Um, <laughs> in other words, it's... It, it, got to go 30 minutes to get to a grocery store in New Hampshire. <laughs> there, there are a lot of places in New Hampshire where, yes, you do have to drive 30 minutes to get to the grocery store. Um, now, you know, relatively speaking, um, uh, you know, as a, uh, as a prominence, um, it, is, it is not the tallest peak in the United States, obviously. Um, but at, at 6,288 feet, it is the highest point in the U.S., uh, excuse me, in the, North, in the northeastern United yeah. States, I'm sorry, in the northeastern United States, and one of the higher, uh, one of the higher points east of the Mississippi. Um, and it, it also happens to have uh, an auto road, formerly known as, uh, as a carriage road. Um, what? Tell the listener a little bit more, uh, if you would, about uh, what that carriage road or what that what that auto road is. Uh, we we mentioned it earlier, but 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 r remind us um, how long. First of all, how long has that auto road been 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 around? Do you uh, you know do 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 you know that? Um, and how long is it? What's what's the surface? 
what's the what's the what's the percent grade? What do you what do you what do you know about about the Mount Washington uh, Auto Road? Could do a whole other podcast just on this. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's hear it. Lay, this, lay some yeah, knowledge on us. Yeah, this is the intersection of my running and cycling interests and my you know my professional interests somewhat. Um, but uh, yeah, Mount Washington Auto Road's been around since I think like the eighteen seventies. And it's 7.6 miles, uh, averages 11.5% grade. And when I say it averages 11.5% grade, it is pretty much that the whole time. Uh, there are maybe three spots where it kind of flattens out to almost flat. And there's a couple spots that kick up to like 17 to 22%. Um, yeah, Kevin, but... let me let, let me let me pause you there for a minute. So just for for the listener that may not necessarily be familiar with what what 12% grade is, is, I mean, is that literally like setting 12% on your 12% elevation on your treadmill? Is that pretty is much, that, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a whole, that's a side note. The, the, the winter, my, my son was born, he was born in November about this time in, in 2013. I spent the whole winter basically training on the treadmill because it was the only, all the, the only time I had was my lunch break. So I went to the gym and set the treadmill to 12% grade every day, uh, Monday through Friday and, uh, and ran varying paces, but yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Um, and it, like I said, it doesn't, doesn't change a whole lot. It's, uh, the surface is now a hundred percent paved as of this year. Um, prior to this year, there were a couple sections of gravel, but they've been slowly working on paving the whole thing. Uh, when I first ran Mount Washington, I'd say probably 70% was paved, maybe 30% was gravel. So, but that was over 20 years ago now. So, um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, like you said, it's not the highest mountain in the, in the country, but it's, uh, known as the world's worst weather, home of the world's worst weather. Uh, a 231 mile an hour wind gust was recorded up there in the 1930s. It was for the longest time, the, um, highest known wind speed ever recorded in the world until, um, I think it was a typhoon a few years ago that, that topped that out in, in the Pacific ocean. But, uh, yeah, it's the real deal. The, uh, you know, there's snow up there six months of the year. And, um, I think there's, they say there's a hundred clear weather days. Um, so 200 plus days of the year, you can't see anything <laughs> and, uh, the weather changes, changes pretty fast. So it's a, it's a pretty unique place. Isn't it, isn't it true that, um, that they have uh, recorded measurable amounts of snow in every month of the year. Yep. 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 And I've been up there. I, I know people who have skied on Mount Washington in every month of the year, two years going. Um, and their definition of skiing is linking three turns together. Um, but there's, you know, I've, I've been up there in late July and still seen patch of snow in Tuckerman Ravine. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, it can be winter year round up there. Well, and it's, I mean, that's pretty remarkable for, uh, for a peak that is, uh, under 10,000 feet in elevation. Right. Um, so, uh, it, interestingly enough, I, I, I did a little digging around on the, on the internet and, uh, uh, the Mount Washington auto road is the oldest man-made attraction in the United States. It technically opened in 1861. Um, at that point, it was, it was horse and buggy. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the auto, uh, the automobile would not, uh, would not summit, um, the, uh, uh, Mount Washington until 1902, I believe was the first time, uh, an automobile would, uh, would, would, would summit Mount Washington. Um, the road is also home to the oldest auto road, the auto it's home to the oldest 
auto race in the United States, the Mount Washington Hill Climb uh, auto race, first held in 1904. Uh, so here's an interesting connection. Uh, you're a, you're a car guy. You mentioned that you mentioned that uh, at the beginning. You know that your your initial love of of NASCAR and, and mechanics and and cars. Uh, you actually had a you had a quasi race car for some time. Um, ever thought about racing the oldest auto uh, uh, race in the United States, the Mount if, Washington Hill Climb? If anybody's looking to sponsor me, I'd be more than happy to because it's <laughs> just a few pennies. I, that's, I, I've joked that's my retirement project. When I retire and I maybe have some expendable income, I'm going to buy a race car and enter. You have to... You have to enter like smaller hill climb events first and kind of like earn points and and uh and stuff and then uh then you can do it so i i know the road better than anybody i've i i have i have a spreadsheet so i'm not quite as bad as dave dunham but i'm pretty close and uh but i have a spreadsheet where i've documented every time i've ever raced mount washington or done a training run on it and i have all my mile splits in there so i can compare and contrast and stuff and uh, i think i've been up the auto road over 75 times either on foot or bike or ski and uh so i i, I know the turns well it, they but they look a little different at 60 miles an hour than at that you know 10 minute mile pace and you i i think i remember you uh you have taken your son uh to watch that uh that auto uh race a handful of times right yep yep a couple times yeah when i was when I was in high school, um, you know, I was more of a NASCAR fan. And then I, I started, I, I think it was probably what piqued my interest was Mount Washington to rally racing um, because they had the hill climb. And, uh, and I think the last year they had it was in 2001 and uh, ended up not going, you know, there was some, some conflict, whatever. And, uh, and then they didn't have it suddenly for 15 years. And so I never, never got to go see it. And then uh, a few years ago, they brought it back. So, so I'm taking my son calling up a couple of times and we've, we've, uh, we've mostly watched from the base, you know, but it's kind of cool because you can go into the pits and meet the drivers and then you can hike partway up the edge of the road and, and watch them come up the first couple of turns. So. Well, my son and I had the opportunity a number of years ago, actually, probably the year that they brought the brought the race back. Um, we hiked up and uh, and watched um, I don't know, two thirds of the race from the uh, from the hairpin turn. Yeah. And um, that's when it was that's when it was still gravel. Yeah. And it was uh, um, it was uh, it was it was really pretty cool to because. Uh, it's a really unique race auto race and that um there's all different classes of cars that race right from the you know from the from the rally cars um you know that are putting out you know 900,000 horsepower and uh the you know the Travis Pastranas of the world and David Higgins um to uh you know to to guys and gals that are racing classic cars uh antique cars yep. Uh, up the auto road. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a super cool, it's a cool event to spectate. Um, and e e even if it is sort of dramatically different from, uh, from the foot race and the bike race, it's still yeah. getting to the top of the mountain as, as quickly as you can, right? Yep. It's all sort of the same idea. Stakes um, are a little higher. <laughs> the stakes are a lot higher. Um, if you make a mistake, yes. Um, <laughs> in fact, for me, uh, and I've, I've run the Mount Washington road race twice, uh, for me, the scariest part uh, uh, was always the drive back down. Uh, and, and as a passenger, I'm, and I'm not a very, I'm not a great passenger anyway. 
Um, but, um, uh, but I'm, I'm actually even a worse passenger riding down the auto road. I, I would walk down the auto road twice before I, before I get driven down it again. Um, so you, you mentioned your work, um, uh, and, and the, the connection between, or the intersection between, um, between your, your athletic, uh, passions as it relates to Mount Washington and your professional, um, uh, you know, your, your professional work, um, you, I think I remember you did some work on the summit um, recently within the last few years. What, what, what took you to the summit professionally? What, what yeah. were you doing there? Yeah. So my last job, I worked at a local engineering firm and uh, one of our, our projects was um, the, we had a contract with the state of New Hampshire. So uh, we, were, we were responsible for surveying and designing any upgrades to facilities that are owned by the state. So that could be a, New Hampshire DOT plow, you know, shed, um, uh, the, any of the, um, one of the projects we had was with the department of environmental services was building a new office. Um, and so on Mount Washington, it's a state park at the top and, uh, they needed upgrades to their sewage system. So not terribly glamorous, but, uh, so after being a surveyor for 15 years and never got it, getting to work up there, I finally got to go up there a few years ago. So me and a coworker went up and basically we were making a map of the, of the whole summit area where the buildings are, where the existing um, sewage treatment plant is and uh, you know, figuring out all the critical elevations and everything of uh, you know, the, the saying shit flows downhill is specifically true when you're designing septic systems um so elevations are critical make sure everything goes downhill um so we uh we spent a day up there mapping everything and then uh, i got to go back up last year and um they were doing upgrades to the water system and so same thing we did some additional surveying to update the map and did some surveying inside the buildings to understand the uh, elevations of the different components of the water system and everything so so that was kind of my first uh first taste of being up there and then in my new job with the forest service uh, i've done some various work uh looking at property boundaries up there um the the summit is an interesting mix of uh, ownership between um the state park uh the cog railway the mount washington auto road um so we're just kind of analyzing all those things and keeping track of what type of development's happening in different areas and make sure everybody's playing by the rules so it's very cool that you 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 have these uh, you clearly have these these uh, these athletic uh, interest um, or and recreational interest uh, which we'll talk about in a moment uh, on the mountain but you also have uh, professional connections probably I mean it's arguable that there isn't anybody that's any more knowledgeable uh, uh, of that mountain than you are um, you know both athletically and and, and professionally um, I mean we meant we we've talked about the the Mount Washington. Uh, road race. We'll talk about the uh, the Mount Washington hill climb, the bicycle race, in just a moment. But you 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 also had some success on that mountain in um, uh, in a in a in a competitive, non competitive way. I'm not quite sure exactly how to describe fastest known times. It is a competitive thing, but it's not a competitive yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what <laughs> do you still do? You still currently uh hold those two fastest known times uh, on mount washington and um uh if so what what are they uh describe to the listener first of all what what it what is what are fastest known times what does that mean and uh, specifically what are the fastest known times that you had held or currently hold as it relates to mount washington 
Yeah, so fastest known times, also known as FKTs, and that's not F Kevin Tilton. That's fastest known time. <laughs> that gets confusing. Um, <laughs> but uh, I get yelled at a lot. But anyways, um, but yeah, so fastest known time is uh, you know a, a route that's um, you know routinely traveled in the mountains or in you know on trails and stuff. And uh, um, you know it used to be kind of a, a word of mouth thing that you know people found out about. And you know, oh yeah, I know so and so did did that. Route back in the day and probably has some of its basics in like mountaineering and rock climbing and stuff and then uh you know with the advent of the internet you can you can look up anything nowadays so uh you know a group of people had created a website and and so you start hearing about all these these different routes and so there's well-established routes like the prezi traverse and the pemi loop and, and franconia ridge and stuff and uh you know i i've spent a lot of time on mount washington training for the road race and and stuff and uh so um you know, I, I never, I don't know if I would say I, I went out of my way to like, try to set them, you know, they were, I'd say they were more of a byproduct of my training of like, okay, I want to get in a hard effort for this race I have coming up. So, um, so I, I set the FKT for the fastest descent of Mount Washington on a trail. It's the thing I don't like about FKTs. There's all these qualifiers. It's not, well, it's not just the fastest descent of Mount Washington. Well, it's the fastest on trail because Jonathan Wyatt went faster on a road, you know, but okay. I'm the fastest person that did it on a trail, you know? So, um, you know, I went up the Tuckerman ravine trail back in 2009 when I was training for, uh, um, for Pikes peak and I ran 5935. And, uh, so as far as I know, um, I'm the only one that's broken 60 minutes, uh, up, up Mount Washington on a trail. And then, uh, I think it was 2014, 2014 or 2015, um, this one I did kind of go after a little bit. Um, there was, uh, a, a local climbing guide, Mark Chauvin, that I used to trail run with a lot. Um, he does ski mountaineering and stuff in the winter and, uh, back before it was cool. And, uh, so he used to, you know, skin up the mountain and, and ski down. And he, his goal was always, he wanted to see if he could do it under two hours. And he, he came close a couple of times, but he had never, never quite broken two hours. And I said, well, geez, I, you know, I think I can go uphill faster and he can on skis. I obviously can't go downhill faster, but, uh, you know, let's see if I can bank some time. So, uh, you know, I, I'd done the, I'd run up and down Washington in the winter a bunch of times, you know, when the rocks are all, all covered and stuff, but, uh, you know, never like super hard, but I, I went after it one day. And, uh, so I went up the winter lion head route and, um, which is about four miles and summited in one Oh seven or one Oh eight, I think. And, uh, quickly threw on a jacket for the descent and came down in 37 minutes. So, um, my time was like one forty-five or, you know, somewhere, somewhere in that range. So that one, a couple people have come pretty close to, but, um, but nobody has quite, quite been under. under that Do one you, yet. so the, um, uh, the, the round trip uh, FKT. Um, do, do you think that that could only be broken in the wintertime where with, with the absence of rocks and roots on a, on, on just a, on a, on a bomber rail yeah. with perfect conditions? I mean, do you, do you think that's the only, those are the only conditions, that's the only season that that, that, that round trip could be, could be. I think, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the, you, you know, you never say never, you know, 10, you, when I, cause I, I held the Franconia Ridge one for, for a while too. And, uh, you know, I ran that in winter conditions and, um, you know, people have been, you know, five, six, seven minutes faster than that now, I think in the summer. Um, but Washington is, is a unique beast where it's, you know, when you get above tree line, it's a lot of rock hopping. Um, you know, I, I run, when I ran my ascent, um, PR, 
I, uh, you know, I ran every step to the bottom of the head wall in Tuckerman Ravine. So a little over three miles and then, you know, power hiked a lot of the head wall. And then even when I got on the summit cone was alternating between power hiking and running and, uh, you know, not to brag, but I don't know many people that can run as much super steep technical terrain as I can. You know, a lot of people have to go to a power, power hike and that's, you know, it's totally fine. And sometimes they're faster than me. Um, but it, it's, and then same thing on the descent, you know, it's, uh, you know, I know some really incredible technical descenders, but you, it's just basic physics. You're going to go faster on a, on a smooth surface. Um, as long as it's not ice and you don't go flying off in a, in a Tuckerman ravine off hmm. a lion head or something. So, um, so that's, that's your recreational, uh, uh um, those are two of your, uh, recreational accomplishment i call them recreational accomplishment i don't really again i don't really know how to categorize they're not races so. they're not races there but it's not it's not not a race there is yeah. some competition element anyway yeah that that, that 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 that's your that's your recreational outlet on mount washington we talked about we talked about the road race obviously in your your experience there um uh since 2017 though you've been uh you've been you've been racing the Mount Washington hill climb, the bicycle race. Now, same auto road, um, but you're, uh, you're on a bike, not on two feet. How many times have you, uh, how many times have you raced the Mount Washington hill climb, the bicycle race? Uh, I think it's four times, uh, 2018, 2019, there was no race in 2020, 21, 22. Yeah. Four times, four times. Yep. Um, and what's so far, uh, well, actually, Compare that, if you will, to the number of times that you've raced the the, the foot race, Mount Washington road race. I mean, twenty one. Okay, all right. losing count. <laughs> okay, all right. so so six times more. Uh, you, you've raced the foot race five or six times more than you. A factor of five or six times, uh, right, six right. times more than the, yeah, than the bicycle race. So much more experience with the with the with the foot race. However, you know the road. Um, and, um, since 2017, I, I, I mentioned that your, your total number of bike rides has increased year over year. Um, now you are, I mean, you, you typically, or generally in the last couple of years, you've been well over 200, 200 and 220 or so rides, uh, a, a year. It's, I don't, when it comes to, when it comes to gravel cycling or mountain biking, I don't know that distance is necessarily a thing because, uh, you know, sometimes the terrain that you're, that you're riding on, you just, you, you can't ride as far on a mountain bike or a yeah. fat bike or a gravel bike as you can on a road bike. Just yeah. because so I, I'm not, I, yeah. to me, I don't, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's necessarily about how many miles you've ridden. I think it's, I think it's rides and I think it's time. I mean, yeah. Time, time, even when I was running, time was a big thing for me. Cause like you said, I, I did, you know, I did a lot of road running, but I did a lot of trail running too, you know, and it's like, you go out for an hour and you cover six miles. If you'd say, well, I have to run 10 miles every day. Well, you're going to be out there for a long time. And, uh, so I learned pretty quickly training around here that I got to go by time. And, and then the seasonality too, of even when I was running a lot, you know, I did cross country ski a fair amount in the winter and, and biked a little bit. And, you know, it's like, if I were like, oh, well, I still have to get my 10 miles of running in, you know, it's like, who cares, you know, just get out there and do something. And, uh, obviously more specific, the better, but, um, you know, you can look at the time over the course of the year and say, okay, I did 380 hours of most of it was running and some of it was skiing and some of it was biking. And, you know, you can compare that year to year. So. Yeah, to totally. And I, yeah, I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about this before. I don't, I don't get hung up in, in mileage. I think, 
I think time is the more important variable anyway, because as it relates to volume, volume is about time. It's not about distance. It's, you know, it's, it's how long does it take you to cover that distance? That, that time variable is what helps to, to, to determine training volume as it relates to the, uh, to the bicycle race, um, to date, uh, you've done it four times. What's your best performance or fastest time at that race? Uh, this year I was one eleven twenty one, I believe. One eleven twenty one. So just and and in terms of uh, in terms of progress, and of course the Mount Washington hill climb is a. I mean, the, any race on Mount Washington, um, you have to you have to um, you have to add the caveat of you know what was the weather because the weather can play a very significant role in terms of performance, right? I mean, you can be in you can be in PR shape but get a, you know, get a slowest day. Uh, and you're just, you're not going to approach your PR just because the, the, the mountain is not going to give up PRs on, on, on certain days. Um, what, what, um, what's your progress been like? What's your, what's your trajectory been like in terms of, in terms of performance from the first year you did it to the, to, to this past year where you did a one eleven? Yeah. First year, I think I was uh one twenty one, and, uh, kind of the, the standard there is if you can be under one twenty, you get put in the top notch wave, which is kind of the elite wave, um, you know, the competitive wave the next year. And so I, I just missed that my first year. And, uh, so it's kind of bummed, but you know, that was, that was where I was at. And then, uh, the next year, I think I was, uh, one twenty eight. I had a, it was a kind of a hot day and just did not, didn't train properly either. That was my real problem, but <laughs> didn't ride well. And then the next year I was one twenty seven, So made some slight improvement, but this year I dropped down to one eleven after kind of recentering and getting my act together. Mm. Um, so you've, you've obviously done, you've done both, um, the foot race and the bike race, um, which is harder. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's interesting The I, I used, when I was a runner, I, I got a story from when Dave Dunham, Richard Bolt and I, in 2004, we ran up the auto road on the day of the bike race. Um, Dave had been injured for the running race that year. And so wasn't able to run, but he wanted to run the road at some point. So the morning of the bike race, we got up early and we ran to the summit and we finished just as the, the lead cyclists were finishing. And then as we ran down, we started, you know, seeing more and more people. And I think we got down to like the three mile mark and we saw, still saw like a couple of people coming up. We're like, man, you know, it's like, all you're doing is you're, you're carrying dead weight. Like there's a mechanical advantage to being on a bike, but you're carrying an extra 15, 20 pounds, you know? And, uh, so, you know, I was convinced for the longest time that, that biking would, would be way harder. And, uh, and I, I still think it, it's weird for myself. I can still push myself harder on foot than I can on the bike, but the bike there's, there's kind of like no break. Like if, if, if you're running and you hit the wall, you can just start walking and you can still make forward progress on a bike. You can literally like run out of gears and fall off the damn thing. And then, and then trying to walk, pushing a bike is not the most, you know, most fun thing by any means. Not that walking. No, certainly, certainly not in bike shoes. It's not, no, no. no. And then even, even if you like catch your breath on a bike and you try to remount the damn thing and you're on a 12% grade, it's like, can you get yourself going? Whereas at least when you're, if you're running and you start walking, you can, you can start running again and maybe you got to walk, but you can kind of alternate that if you have to. But on the bike, that's not a not a guarantee. So, luckily, I've never had to deal with that. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it's it's still tough in that that sense. 
So do you think the razor's edge is sharper on the bike, meaning, uh, meaning, 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 you know, pushing up to the point of complete collapse, um, is, is more of a, is more of a finer edge on the bike. In other words, you, you, you've got less margin for error on the bike than you do on the run in terms of. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. You know, and it's like, especially too, with like the weather and stuff, you know, if the road's wet and you've got the possibility of like your wheels slipping, if it's windy, you know, you got this bigger cross-sectional area where it can catch you, you know, running, you can maybe kind of tuck in behind people or, you know, you can, you can go to the side of the road where you're sheltered from the wind a little bit, where it's a little tougher to do that on the bike. Um, even this year I was having a good race and I was going along and I, you know, I kind of looked over my right shoulder and I was on the left-hand side of the road, just kind of looking behind me to see if somebody was coming up on me. And I almost rode off in the ditch, you know? So it's like, I would never do that running, you know? So it's, uh, you definitely gotta be a little more careful. Uh, I mean, you mentioned mechanical advantage, obviously, uh, you know, I'm one, one of the big differences between the foot race and the bike race is the bike. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and th there's, there are, there are advantages within different classes of bikes. Not all bikes are, are, are created or built to be hill climbing bikes. Um, do you have a hill climbing bike? Uh, and if so, what, what is it? Um, and, and have you, have you used different bikes, um, in, in these first four races? So yes, I'm a complete dork. I have a separate hill climbing bike and I have a separate hill climbing bike specifically for Mount Washington. Um, the first two times I did Mount Washington, I did it on my gravel bike because that's what I had. It was the lightest bike I had. And, uh, you know, I, I swap over a set of wheels that had road tires, uh, but it worked pretty well because it, it you know, it's fairly light, had lower gearing. Um, I had a one-to-one -one gear, basically a 34 is my small chain ring on the front and a 34 is my big cog on the back. So, um, so that worked pretty well for me. Um, use that a lot in training rides and stuff. And I can, I can ride up most stuff with, with that. Um, but after two years of doing that, you know, I was like, all right, you know, I being the total Mount Washington nerd that I am, I'm like, I can, I can make something specific for this. So I had been kind of perusing Facebook marketplace, hoping to, find a cheaper used carbon fiber, you know, road bike or road frame, um, that I could, could set up for Mount Washington. So, uh, a local shop was, was liquidating some really old stock that they had. They had an old carbon road frame. It had a frame fork, a seat post and a stem. And, uh, you know, it was fairly, fairly light. And I said, and it was a reasonable price. So I said, all right, here we go. I'm going to do this. And so I had been, I'd say for two years, I'd been kind of researching what I, what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, with hill climb bikes, it's all about weight, you know, I mean, um, you know, there's a little bit of debate, you know, whether, you know, the right gearing versus the weight is more important, but for, you know, in my personal experience, especially on Mount Washington, where I mentioned earlier, it's one consistent grade the whole way. Um, you know, you're pretty much in one to two gears the whole time. The two times that I had done it on my gravel bike, I think I was in three gears, and most of the time I was in that lowest gear. And then probably a couple of times I shifted up to the, the next two highest gears and that's it. So I had an 11 speed cassette on the back, a full rear derailleur, uh, a double chain ring on the front with a front derailleur on that. Um, so, you know, and then the shifters that go with it. So you start adding all that up and it's a decent amount of weight. So, so I decided I wanted to build a, a single speed bike. And uh, so I ended up, you know, finding used carbon parts or, you know, things, uh, on sale, you know, closeout parts and stuff. So basically my, my hill climb bike is uh, a carbon frame fork seat post. It's got a Shimano XTR 
mountain bike crank. Um, it's normally a double crank. Um, I needed a double to get the smaller chain ring um, on the, the smaller side, but I only run that one chain ring. So I think I'm running a 28 tooth chain ring on that. And then on the back, I have a 26 tooth cog. Uh, the first year I did it, I had a 28 tooth cog, um, but I got in better shape and lost some weight. So I can run a little bit smaller cog on there. It's got the chain. It's got a, um, a jockey pulley just to keep some tension on it. Uh, it has carbon wheels that I got cheap from a local mechanic with tubular tires and uh, a flat handlebar, which I get a ton of comments on, but it's a flat carbon mountain bike handlebar because it was the lightest thing I could find. And uh, the whole thing weighs just over 11 pounds. Yeah. Um, obviously, weight is an important variable, uh, as you mentioned, with these with these hill climb bikes. Uh, Cause it, cause it influences your power to weight ratio, right? Uh, which is a, which is a performance determinant. Um, are there, are there basic requirements in terms of what the bike must have? I don't, you, yeah. I don't, I don't remember you mentioning brakes, but I thought I had heard before that people were taking the brakes off of their bikes. This yeah. isn't, it's an uphill race, obviously. Right. Um, yeah. unlike the foot race, uh, in which, um, they, they permit people to run back down the mountain. You cannot ride your bike back down the mountain Correct. after the hill climb. So, um, but that said, are there, are, are there any basic other, other than maybe it having yep. two wheels or maybe that's not a requirement. Are there any, are there, are there any mechanical requirements, uh, uh that, the, that the bike must have? They do require that you have one operating brake. Um, so that's, that is, is a requirement. I have never had to use it except for basically at the finish line. And usually there's so many people there to catch you at the finish line and you're going so slow. You could just coast and come to a stop, but they do require that. So I do have a, um, a front brake. I was able to buy a used Dura Ace, uh, front brake caliper, um, to, uh, to get the lightest thing I could. And then I've got a really small handle to a mountain bike type, uh, handle to, to activate it. And I think it works. It's. I didn't bother putting it because it's carbon wheels and I still got rubber pads in it. So I wouldn't want to try to stop too fast, but, uh, but it, I think it works. So, so, um, <laughs> um, any other, any other mods left to do on that Mount Washington hill climb bike or, or do you have it where, where you, where you want it? Right I, I could, I, I meant to cut the, the handlebars down. They're at their, <laughs> their stock factory length. So I could cut those down and, and lose a few ounces there. Um, I could probably find a lighter saddle. It came with a saddle that, you know, is comfortable and, you know, you're on it for an hour. So it doesn't need to be the most comfortable thing in the world. So I know there's some, some carbon saddles out there that are, are lighter. Um, you know, nowadays with like 3d printing and stuff, it could probably come up with something like that too. Um, so, you know, they're all things that kind of add up if you do do a little here, a little there, but, uh, there's yeah, not and, too much else I, I could do to it, I don't think. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's interesting because what, what, what we're talking about literally is grams at mm. this point in terms of weight savings. However, um, <laughs> there's a there's a there's a much better way to make a much bigger splash in terms of in terms of your your power to weight ratio. And that is losing some LBS. That's losing some pounds. 
tell the listener, uh, tell the listener what you've done in that regard uh, from the first year that you raced it to uh, what, uh, what, what did you race at in terms of body mass this year? Yep. Yeah. So I'll preface this by saying, you know, I don't want people to sound like, um, you know, I have an eating disorder or, you know, that, you know, that you should be as absolute light as possible to, you know, to race your best, um, a little bit of background when I ran my PR at, in the running race at Mount Washington, I was probably 128 pounds or something. Um, yeah. and I'm how, very, how tall are you, Kevin? Uh, five, seven. So, okay. you know, I was, I was pretty thin, you know, I was, I was coming off of, uh, being a poor college student living off of spaghetti and ramen and, uh, and running 80 miles a week. And, uh, you know, but that's, that's where I was at. That wouldn't, I wouldn't say that was my natural weight, but I was fairly healthy, you know, doing that. And, uh, you know, over the years, you know, the wheat, the weight creeps up a little bit, but nothing crazy, you know, and I, I, I did a lot of really good racing around 132 was kind of my natural racing weight. And then, uh, you know, fast forward 10 years and I was, I was at 170 pounds, you know, and, uh, I was still out running or biking or skiing or hiking or doing something almost every day, you know, still putting in 350 hours of some type of training, um, but I probably spent as much time eating as I did training, you know, and, uh, um, you know, so it was, I, I just got to a point where I got fed up of, you know, putting all that time in while I was enjoying myself out training and, and doing that stuff, you know, I, I still had, had goals, you know, for, for racing and stuff. So, um, it was in last, yeah, 2021, I, uh, you know, had a, pretty much a stinker at Mount Washington, a 127, um, despite having, you know, some pretty good training. And, uh, and I knew I was basically 30, at least 30 pounds overweight. So I said, I'm going to do something about this. I'm turning 40 in a year. Um, you know, it was, I was getting to the borderline of, of not being healthy and, uh, um, family history of, uh, of health issues when it comes to weight and stuff. So I said, I'm going to, going to rein this in. So that's when I started working with Chris again. And, uh, so gradually over time, we didn't do anything drastic. It's been a matter of just being consistent with training, watching what you eat, but not being, you know, uh, crazy about it. Um, and, uh, and here we are a year later and dropped 20, almost 22 pounds and, uh, dropped, let's see. Yeah. I went from 127 to 111. So 16, 16 minutes off my time on the, in the bike race in Mount Washington. Yeah. And you, you, you and I have talked before about this, uh, uh, this, this, this formula or this algorithm that, that you, uh, that, that you use or this, this common sense that you use in terms of, uh, uh, every pound equates to, uh, X number of, of, of minutes. What remind me what, 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 what that is. Yeah. Basically for me, it's worked out that for every pound I've lost, I've, I've taken a minute off my time, um, both in the bike race and the running race, um, running race this year only went to halfway. Um, but I was like 33, 30. And if you take that and double it and add five minutes, I would have been around a one thirteen. Whereas, uh, last year, I think I ran a one thirty three or something. So, you know, 20 minutes off of, off of that time and, and pretty close to that on the bike. So like I said, there's a, there's a point of diminishing returns and you don't want to get unhealthy, but uh, you know, for me, I'm talking about comparing myself to where I was, you know, 20 years ago, essentially, um, you know, as far as what my, my race weight was not this pie in the sky goal of like, Oh, if I can, you know, lose five pounds off of my lowest weight, I'm going to be that much faster. Um, so it's, uh, for me, it's, it's been a goal just to get healthier, but the, I've reaped some performance benefits from it. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely think you have. 
Well, let's let's finish the conversation with with this. Uh, you you mentioned goals, and um, I wanted to make sure uh, that um, that we talked for a few minutes about uh, your 2023 goals because uh, you've uh, I, I think they're interesting. Um, I also think they're pretty aggressive, and um, they're quite unique. Um, so interesting, aggressive, uh, and unique. Um, I think makes for good conversation. So we obviously spent some time talking about the um, uh, foot race and the bike race. Um, you've got goals related to the foot race and bike race in 2023. Tell the listener what those goals are. Yeah, goals should be big and scary, uh, even if they're unattainable. Um, is is my, always been my my thing. Um, you know, I I set a goal to. Once I got serious about running that I wanted to run, run in college and people were like, you're not that good. I ran in college and ran respectably. And then I quit college team and people are like, oh, that was the dumbest thing you could have ever done and made two U.S. mountain running teams. And, you know, and then last year I, I was 30 pounds overweight and I said, I want to, I want to break 110 in both the bike race and the running race. Nobody's ever done that like in their whole career and nobody's ever done it in the same year, but I, I want to do that this year. And so, uh, you know, I set that goal and came up a little short. Of course, the running race only went to halfway, but like I said, it would have been around a 113 and the bike, I was 111. So pretty darn close, but not quite there. And, uh, you know, so you could say, well, okay, that's, that's my goal for next year. But I'm like, well, you know, I made progress and I think there's still room to improve. So, um, number one goal for, for the run would be to get under 110 again, which I've done a number of times, but, um, to do it being over 40 now would be awesome and then uh i've set my biking goal to 65 minutes um which is six minutes faster than i did this year um but i think it's uh it's something with some work chris and i have you know done a great job of working together and figuring out what works for me training wise and stuff and you know uh losing a few more pounds and you know we're talking to me getting down to 140 um you know like i said my best racing weight back in the day was was 128 132 you know so we're not talking about um you know crazy low weight or anything but you know taking a few more pounds off and and uh so 65 minutes would be pretty amazing because if i could do that on the bike then nobody's definitely nobody's done that on the bike and on the run um, with, you know, having a 6342 on the run would be, would be pretty awesome for that. So now there have been, there have been athletes that have done both uh, races in a calendar year and have done, uh, done pretty well. Did, did, are there any, any names come to come to mind? Who, who, yeah. Who um, I think Eric Van Gendry's has the, uh, the fastest combined time in the same year. So he did, uh, I think it was around a one, 111 or a 112 for the run and then it was like 63 minutes on the bike so that's pretty pretty impressive and then um you know i was uh pretty close to being fastest combined over a career because eric basically has that record also and uh and so with my 103 42 and my 111 21 and I, that would stack up pretty well except uh craig fram who's now in his 60s showed up and uh, as a former mount washington road race winner um he was on the bike this year and he was like 20 seconds faster than me on the bike and his mount washington running pr is also about 20 seconds faster than mine so okay. so okay. he's got the i think he's got the fastest career uh yeah. record right but now, it, which but is completely it, made up uh and yeah. only exists on dave Dunham's blog i think so. well well if it's on dave Dunham's blog it's a thing <laughs> but but for you it's it's important to it's important to perform well at both of those races at this point in your life within the same calendar year. So yep. 
So the question is then um, for the listener, how do we train for those two events? Because from a timing standpoint, the Mount Washington foot race is in mid June and the bike race is in mid August, right? You've got, um, it's like six, seven, eight weeks between the, the, the bike race, uh, the foot race and the bike race. So, so how do we, how do we prioritize, how do we prioritize the, the preparation for those, for those two events with them, with the two events being really relatively close together? I mean, you know, the thing about, the thing about them being, you know, eight weeks or so apart is that, um, is that they're close enough that there needs to be some overlap in your preparation. In other words, you, you got to be kind of doing both running and cycling. Um, I mean, if they, if, if they were, you know, if they were, if they were spaced out or if, if they were, um, if they were a little closer together, um, you know, the, the, the training may be, may be different. So how do we, how do we prioritize the preparation for those two events? And this, this will be our second year, um, working together on this particular project. Yep. Yeah, it's um, it it's the I think it's the one race you can do where you can have you know that like if you were to go out and say I want to run a half marathon as fast as I can, and then six weeks later I want to do a thirteen mile time trial on the bike as fast as I can. There's not a lot of training overlap there, you know. I mean, there's there's obviously some, you know, but they're completely different things, you know, your energy systems, how you work muscularly and stuff. Whereas, you know, okay, we're on the same exact course here, we're going up Mount Washington, but the the muscle groups that you use and how you use them, the the turnover rate on the bike and the running is very similar, um, and then the times end up similar. You look at the times, you know, like I said, if I had run the full race this year, I would have been, you know. 73 minutes and I was 71 minutes on the bike. So, um, you know, it's the, the, the same heart rate zones and, and all that stuff. So, so we've, uh, for the running race last year, you know, we, we focused on a lot of threshold work. Um, you know, primarily, um, I was primarily doing most of my base mileage on the bike because it's what I enjoy doing now. It also beats me up less. And, uh, but you know, one to two days a week, I would do a running workout that was, you know, some type of threshold intervals over unders, you know, longer pieces at, at threshold. Um, and then, you know, some weeks would be two, two running workouts like that. Some weeks would be one running workout and one biking workout. Um, so I was staying in touch with, with biking hard, but with the, the running being the priority, um, and then getting all those base miles on the bike. So, um, so I think it's set up really well for, for, um, for the Mount Washington running race, because like I said, I was, especially too, I, I wasn't running enough. I was probably really only running like one to two days a week. So every time I do a mountain run, I, I could, I'd be fine from the uphill, but then I'd run downhill and my body wasn't used to the pounding. So in a perfect world, like this year, I plan on doing a little more running to, uh, to be able to do that. But the, the easy biking allowed me to, uh, you know, to recover a little better. Um, you know, going into the race. So we, we hit the timing on that. Perfect. And then, uh, on the flip side, when we got, you know, once the running race was over, kind of took an easy week and then did mostly, mostly cycling through the summer and, uh, same, same type of workouts, a lot of threshold type stuff where you're at that, that heart rate and, um, that you're going to be at for an hour plus on Mount Washington. And, uh, this year I plan on actually throwing in a little bit of running because I, I have found like, adding in a little bit of running every week seems to help my cycling. Um, you know, it's, it kind of makes your legs a little stronger and everything. So, so that's one, one adjustment we're going to make, but there's, there's a lot of crossover between the two, which is good. Mm. And 
one one of your active concerns uh, had been in terms of organizing um, these two training camps, the the running training camp and the bike training camp, uh, was and because this is something that you've experienced before, uh, which is peaking too early. Mm-hmm. You did not want to peak too early with respect to the to the running race. So you, you were you mentioned talk about um, adding threshold workouts. We waited to add those threshold workouts until very, very late in the training camp. We were probably within the last within the final four weeks of the preparation for the foot race before we started before we started doing uh, the threshold work in earnest. Now, last winter set up differently for you than this winter. Um, in so much as last winter, you were, uh, you were preparing for the Berkey and the Berkey, uh, that, um, 50 K, uh, ski event, uh, did, was it, did you do classic or skate, 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 skate. Yeah. 50 yeah. kilometer skate ski event out in, um, uh, cable, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. The, uh, largest, uh, Nordic skiing event obviously in the United States, it's got to be one of the largest in the world. There's a, there's a few that are definitely bigger in Scandinavia, but yeah, it's the, uh, it's the biggest ski marathon in the United States, maybe North America. There might be one bigger in Canada, but um, it's essentially the Boston marathon of ski marathons. And uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a lot like Boston where, you know, you're, you go along the course and there's people maybe not lining every inch, but you know, you're, you're skiing through the woods and, there's places where snowmobile trails cross and there's like a ton of snowmobilers stop there and they're cheering you on. And usually, usually on the downhills where there's the potential for crashing, but, uh, um, but it's uh it's a pretty, pretty cool event. That well, last winter, that was your, um, that was your capstone event for the winter. And then we, uh, we, we basically rolled or carried that, uh, that fitness into your, uh, Mount Washington preparation. This winter is going to be different. No Berkey for you this winter. So, um, so what, what will your winter, how will your winter be different, uh, this year than it was last year? No, uh, no, no preparation for the Berkey, uh, this winter. So what, how will the, how will January, February, and March, uh, look, uh, different for you? Yeah. Winter has always been one of my, my favorite seasons for training. Um, you know, I love the, the, different conditions and uh you know a lot of people will complain about it if, if you're training for the boston marathon yeah winter in new england's awful um but you know if you're if you're open to doing different things there's so much to do um you know sometimes it's like oh it's 50 degrees i'm gonna run on the roads because it's nice out and um you know but I, I used to do a lot of my running on snowmobile trails i used to do snowshoe running on, on single track and running up mountains and stuff and then uh you know did a little bit of cross-country skiing and then you know like you said uh last year with the berkey my my focus was still mixing up those different things and doing a lot of fat biking but i was making sure i was getting in a long ski every weekend and you know was primarily doing most of my mileage on on the skis um you know this winter i i don't have any plans to do a ski marathon so you know i'll still ski because i enjoy it but i won't feel the need to you know go to bretton woods and ski around in circles for three hours um you know if the conditions are right and i want to ride my my fat bike up a mountain or you know go um alpine touring or, or do a snowshoe run or whatever um it's just you know get out there and whatever the conditions allow you know find the best activity for those conditions and do it yeah and for 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 you like uh like my other athletes the um for my other athletes whose winter activity phase 
is the uh, is the activity phase just prior to their training camp, uh, because after after your winter activity phase, you will you'll open up your Mount Washington uh, training camp. Um, there's a high degree of discretion. In other words, it, there's there's very little, if anything, that we have planned uh, in Q1 uh, of 2023. Um, other than other than you just sort of taking advantage of of what Mother Nature gives you in terms of in terms of weather. So whether that's uh, again, you know, snowshoeing or Nordic skiing or fat biking or um, or you know, running on micro spikes on snowmobile trails, you will uh, you you're you're, you're going to sort of take what Mother Nature gives you in terms of in terms of activity without any specific compulsion or uh, or uh, obligation in, t- in terms of training. We don't. We don't do workouts in in the winter time. Um, we just, you know, we we encourage just routine physical activity. You're also going to be continuing to work on optimizing body mass so that you know when you kick off your Mount Washington training camp, you don't have you don't have that last five, six, seven pounds to lose. That you're going to be pretty close to your your optimal uh, uh, body mass by the time uh, the Mount Washington Road Race training camp opens up. Um, well, those, you know, again, I, I, I think it's, uh, uh, I think it's a really, really, it's, it's a really unique challenge. The combination of, of, of those two events. It's, and it's not as though, it's not as though, it's not as though you're the only person that's ever done both races in one calendar year, but, um, but to do them both under 110 and the, you know, and, and the bike race under 65 is, uh, uh, is, is really a, a pretty aggressive goal. Well, Kevin, let's, let, let's, let's finish the conversation with a little segment of the show. I like to call three random questions. I've got, I've got three random, uh, questions for you. Uh, and so before we do that, if you would, uh, verify for the listener that you have not been given these three random questions in advance. I have not been given these three random questions in advance. That is signed, stamped, and sealed with both my New Hampshire and Maine state licenses for surveying. So, all right, perfect. Um, well, that 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 makes it uh, that, that makes it much more interesting that way. Okay, first random question for uh, for Kevin Tilton is this uh, question number one: uh, What's your n plus one? In so in cycling, well, actually, you you. You describe it. What is, what is N plus one? What does N plus one mean in cycling? What does that refer to? N plus one is is a math equation where N is the number of bikes you have and N plus one is the number of bikes you should have. You should always <laughs> have one more than what you have. So uh, so what's my N plus one? That's a good question. Um, I guess maybe a full suspension bike. Cause it's, that's one thing I don't have. And I've only ridden twice, two or three times, maybe. Um, like I said, I'm not a very avid mountain biker. I like I have fun when I go mountain biking, but I, I get like, you, you could probably look on training peaks and you could see my heart rate graphs are elevated compared to a normal mountain biker, not because I'm working any harder, but it's because I'm nervous the whole time. And you know, my teeth are chattering and stuff. So uh, maybe a full suspension bike would make, make it a more enjoyable, but I have, what do I have? I have a gravel bike. I have a road bike. I have a fat bike. I have a hardtail. I have my hill climb bike, and I have my 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 famous 2002 K2 hardtail that I rode at the 2012 24 Hours of Great Glen. Everybody's seen that great picture that I converted to a gravel drop bar gravel bike. So I have six bikes. So um, yeah, I think the only thing I don't have is a is a full suspension bike. 
so I'm glad you mentioned the 24 hours of Great Glen. Would this would this full suspension bike then potentially bring the 24 hours of Great Glen back into play for you? Never, never. Well, I shouldn't say never, but I did it in 2012, and then I didn't do it again until what was that? 2021 last year when I was at my previous job. We had a couple of company teams, and I was I was drafted into into doing. And that's why I bought my hardtail because I had gotten rid of my other hardtail because I didn't ride it enough. And so I was riding my fat bike out on when I go mountain biking, which was totally fine. But then the competitive side of me was like, oh, I got to get a new bike to do 24 hours of Great Glen. And it was an awful, awful experience that I don't plan on doing again. Plus, it's two weeks before Mount Washington. So that's my excuse. Yeah, the time. Yeah, the the timing, the timing never really lines up. Um, All right. Second random question for for Kevin Tilton. Um, You've obviously done both the Mount Washington road race and the Pikes Peak Ascent. Uh, Which one's harder? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think once upon a time, I was going to write an article for Trail Runner magazine about this, and I never quite got around to it. But uh, Mount Washington is hard in the sense of you are at your threshold limit for an hour, hour plus. And, you know, if you're racing it hard, and especially if you're racing other people, there is there is nowhere to hide, nowhere to, to, let, uh, to let up. Um, Pike's Peak, at least for me, in my experience, is it's it's more like a marathon. Like, you know, you run a marathon and the first half of the marathon is like, oh, this pace isn't that bad. And then eventually, you know, you get to 20 miles or something and if, you know, you might hit a wall or you might bonk or something. Pike's Peak is kind of like that where you, you know, you, you find your limit and you, you know, to just stay behind it that whole time and not go over it. But then no matter what you do, you hit, you know, 12,000 feet. And suddenly your, your, your brain swells into your, you know, it's hitting your skull and your fingers are swelling and, you know, you, you, you can't figure out, I, I have this, I have this distinct memory. I was above tree line there one year and I'm, I'm running along and I got to this, this rock in the middle of the trail and I stopped for a minute and I'm like, should I go left or should I go right? And then I was, it took me a second to realize I could just go over it. But that was my thought process because everything is just so much slower there. So I I would say Mount Washington's harder, but it's not to say the Pikes Peak is easy by any means. Well, I think it's I mean, I always think it's the, that that whole idea that um, the, the the longer the race doesn't necessarily equate to the race being more difficult. Right. Sometimes when the shorter races in which you're spending uh, as a percentage of time, more time at threshold can feel more feel more difficult yeah. for sure the real right. the real answer to that question is a 3k on the indoor track that's <laughs> if you want to taste blood and be coughing for the next week 3k on the indoor track especially if somebody's long jumping over on the side kicking up dust. <laughs> last last random question for for kevin tilton um <laughs> this has got to be this is this this is probably this is probably the, the my most favorite random question that I've ever asked anyone. So, um, back in the day, how much did you own Josh Ferentz? <laughs> I knew this was coming. I didn't see the question, but I knew it was coming. I totally owned him like twice in like 15 meetings probably, but to me, they were super memorable. So 
and please please to elaborate what what so josh Josh, yeah josh and i came on the mountain scene at about the same time you know i was i was still in college and you know in my my junior year and trying this mountain thing and i was the young guy by by a long shot and uh and so i show up to the first race and here's this other young guy who you know he might have even been wearing a keen state singlet i'm like who the hell is that like this guy's not gonna beat me and so he beat me at wachusett by a little bit and then what else did we have? I think, I think he beat me at Kearsarge. And then that first year that we raced together at Mount Washington in 2004, the infamous year where he is like flopping, like he's got mad cow disease across the finish line. He was, he beat me there. So I can give him shit about that, but it doesn't matter because he beat me, um, you know, but I, I took it personally and then I, I trounced him at Mount Escutney like the following week at a race that didn't really matter. But, and then uh, I, I've beat him a couple other times in Mount Washington, but he, he's usually got my measure, especially in an up and down race. I can't even, can't even be close to him. But uh, we, we we had a good friendly rivalry. So, We're, speak speaking of rivals and bonus question. So, uh, obviously, Ference was uh, was 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 a nemesis of yours. Uh, who else uh, on the local running scene were uh, were were rivals of yours back in the day? Uh, definitely Double J is the is the first one that always always pops to Jim Johnson. Mind. Yep, you know we we used to run together a lot and, uh, and and train together and do crazy mountain runs and stuff. And it, it's Josh and I had an interesting you know when we raced each other we we came at it from different ends. He he had a lot more leg speed than I did. You know was really good at the up and down stuff. And I you know I tend to you know maybe be a little better at the the ascent and the the longer stuff. And our personalities are polar opposite. You know he's the most confident person you'll ever meet, and I'm you know fairly quiet and reserved at at races and stuff. And uh, and Double J and I was kind of similar in the way we trained and stuff. Um, especially when he moved moved up here, he lives you know just down the road from me now, and uh, you know he'll just go out and run 620 pace every day for 10, 15 miles a day, you know, day after day and doesn't do any workouts. And me, I've got to, I got to do like hard workouts where I hammer myself and then I have to like jog around it at nine minute pace for five miles a day after to recover for a couple of days or something. But we'd run, you know, in the mountains and snowshoes within, you know, 10, 20 seconds of each other in, uh, in just about every race. So, uh, so yeah, we had a lot of head to head battles, but we had a lot of, a lot of fun too. You know, we used to carpool the races and miss flights together and have to drive back across the country and stuff like that. So good, that's good times. I totally forgot about that story. We're going to have to save that story for <laughs> another episode of the podcast because, <laughs> because, and I've tried, I tried to get to get Double J on the show. Maybe, oh, maybe that, would, that would be the impetus to get him on the show is to is to uh, have you both appear together and to tell the story of renting a car in uh, Minneapolis, Minneapolis, uh, yep. because you'd missed your flight and driving back to New England, New Hampshire in a rental car uh, in the dead of winter. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, that. Well, yep. Let's save that. Let's save that story because that's also that's an epic. That's an epic double J story. Um, well, Kevin, this conversation has been has been awesome. Uh, I, I really appreciate you uh, spending some time with me. No problem. I had fun. It was great. Thanks. So often, it's really difficult for elite athletes to evolve. 
past success creates a very tight hold on what was and makes it really hard to see what can be. Frankly, it's a challenge for any of us who've become experts at something to start over and become beginners at something new. Yet that's exactly what Kevin did. Setting his ego aside, he embraced the challenge of becoming a psych. It's really a great lesson for all of us, I think. Well, once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to your homepage and click the follow button to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn and the show's fa- Facebook page at Eat Half Walk Double. So make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.